0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Lakewood Bible Chapel. Uh, this is the preaching service. Please open your Bibles uh, and turn with me to Genesis chapter 7 and stand for the reading of God's Word. Starting in verse 1, this is God's inspired, inerrant An infallible word. Then Yahweh said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, two, a male and his female. Also of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep their seed alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. And Noah did according to all that Yahweh had commanded him. Now Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Of clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground by twos. They came to Noah into the ark, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. In Genesis chapter 6, we learned about the wickedness of those who lived during the time of Noah. Genesis 6, 5. Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 6.11, The earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. Genesis 6.12, God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And then we read the following words that God spoke to Noah in light of this. The end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Prior to this, in Genesis 6-3, God informed Noah that he would not strive with man, with this evil, this wickedness, this rebellion of his creation forever. On the contrary, God told Noah, man is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Which, by the way, is commonly misunderstood as God telling Noah that the average lifespan of man would decrease to around 120 years. But in fact, that's not the case. One commentator confirms this when he says the following. Some have also described this as the longevity of mankind. For a number of generations after the flood, people lived to be much older than this. For example, Isaac lived to 180 years, so it's not referring to longevity. In Genesis 6, verse 3, God is setting up a countdown. He's setting up a a timeline for when his judgment would come upon the violence and wickedness of Noah's generation. He's drawing a line in the sand and saying, My mercy... My grace, my long-suffering, in the face of this evil, has a time limit. My patience will run out, and then I will deal with this evil generation. Brothers and sisters, friends, what an important thing it is to realize that, yes, God is patient. Yes, God's long-suffering is indeed long, but it will not last forever. We cannot presume on the patience of God. As Paul explains in Romans 2.4 when he says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God." In Genesis 6:3, God told Noah 120 years and then judgment comes. And during those 120 years, God commanded Noah to construct this ark. And by the way, that doesn't necessarily mean that it took the whole 120 years to build it. All we really know for certain is that when God gave the command to build the ark in Genesis 6:14, that this command took place on or sometime after Genesis 6:3 when God first informed Noah that judgment would come in 120 years. Some theologians even estimate that it only took Noah 55 to 75 years to actually build the ark. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter how long it took Noah to build the ark. What matters is Noah's response to God when God gave him the exact instructions that he would need to build this ark. Genesis 6.22 tells us how Noah responded. Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Noah was a man who obeyed God. This is clear from his faithfulness to follow God's commands in Genesis chapter 6, and we will see this obedience continue in Genesis chapter 7, where we now consider the first point in our outline. God issues the command... Load the ark. And so the time has come. 120 years have passed since Genesis 6 3. Methuselah has died and Noah has built the ark. The big day has almost arrived. And throughout this time, between Genesis 6 3 and Genesis 7 1, we learn from 2 Peter 2 verses 4 and 5 that Noah preached righteousness to his generation. 2 Peter 2, 4 and 5 tells us that God preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Noah had been warning those around him of the coming judgment. He had been preaching to his generation how to escape the imminent wrath of Yahweh. But no one listened. No one heeded Noah's call to repent of their sin. No one turned from their wickedness. No one followed Yahweh in obedience to righteousness. The fact of the matter is only Noah was saved along with seven others, seven people who were the immediate family of Noah. And from the horizontal perspective, from the perspective of this life, from the perspective of man, Noah was a massive failure. He's got this huge boat, and no water to float it on. He's preached for probably 120 years to these people, and only seven others have believed and responded. And by the way, those seven were his immediate family. None of his neighbors, none of his friends, none of his cousins or his aunts or his uncles or his brothers or his sisters, none of those in his generation. Believed. But here's the point. The perspective of man has no bearing on what God thinks. How things look on the horizontal don't really tell us a whole lot about what is really going on, about what is really true. Man's ideas of progress and success in no way reflect what is important to God. Isaiah 55 8 and 9. Tell us, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And we see this confirmed in verse one of our text this morning when we read, Then Yahweh said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this generation, Noah alone. The implication being that from the righteous line of Seth, which we studied in Genesis chapter 5, that Noah was the last one left. Lamech, Noah's father, had passed away roughly five years before this. What's more, Methuselah, Noah's grandfather, had probably just died. It was just Noah. It was just Noah, his wife and his sons, and his sons' wives. No one else was left. No one else was left whom Yahweh saw as righteous. Judgment is imminent. God's patience has ended. And Noah is the only righteous one left. And thus God says, For you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this generation. And so, in preparation for the coming judgment, in preparation for the coming flood, Yahweh commands Noah to enter the ark. And let's not look over the fact that God's command is directed not only at Noah, but also his household, even though Noah alone is seen by God as righteous, for God doesn't just instruct Noah to enter, but he also includes his family, you and your household, One commentator makes the following observation. His family was spared for his sake, but it is likely that Noah's righteousness and firm stand against the world affected his family. They chose to follow him on the ark, which suggests that they shared his trust in what God was about to do. Just think about that for a moment. What an amazing impact Noah must have had on his family. Noah was no failure. His preaching may not have converted the masses, but his life converted those most important to him, his wife, his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. Those closest to Noah saw his faith lived out in spite of the wickedness around him. And we see this explained in Hebrews 11, verse 7, which says, By faith, Noah being warned about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. In light of this, in light of the impact that Noah had on his family through the faith that he lived out, obeying the commands of Yahweh in his violent, evil, and wicked generation, brothers and sisters, in light of these things, I implore you, do not underestimate the impact that you can have on the eternal destination of those in your family. For like Noah, our lives, our faith that we live out in obedience to Christ, the conversations that we have with those in our family that do not yet know Christ, the things that these things have a great and potentially saving impact on the lives of those whom we love that do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But I think this also speaks in particular to husbands and fathers. After all, it is very likely that Noah's household entered the ark because of how Noah lived as a husband to his wife and how Noah lived as a father to his children and to his children's wives. Husbands, fathers, do not underestimate the impact that you can have on your wives and on your children for eternity. Said another way, do not underestimate the weight of responsibility that you have to serve and to teach your wives and your children in light of eternity. Paul speaks about the way that godly husbands minister to their wives when he says the following in Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Simply put, as a minimum, as the the low bar, the very least, we as husbands should be spending time with our wives in the word together, reading it, talking about it, and growing together in it. Regarding children, we, we read the following in Proverbs two six: Train up a child according to his way. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And while this verse in Proverbs should not be looked at as a promise, it is a principle of wisdom. That if you, fa- that if you fathers and mothers train up your children according to the way that they should live, which means according to the way of Christ, then they will much more likely and by God's grace follow in that way instead of go the way of Cain. And I believe that this is what we are seeing here in Noah. Noah was the kind of husband and father that when he obeyed the Lord, his wife and his family followed him in that obedience. Brothers, this is what it means to lead your wife and to lead your family in the things of the Lord. Godly leadership should never look like that of a dictator requiring that our wives and children should conform to our own selfish whims and demanding that they do all that our fleshly desires require of them. On the contrary, we lead selflessly as their servants before the Lord. We, through our example of obedience to the Lord, should be showing our wives and children how to conform to the will and commands of Yahweh." The godly leadership of the husband, of the father, of the man is not a kind of leadership that demands obedience to us. No, it is the kind of leadership that demonstrates obedience to Christ. Men, please listen to me right now. I encourage you this morning to truly reflect upon your own life. Reflect on your relationship with your wife. Reflect on your relationship with your children and ask God to search your heart and see which kind of man you are. Are you sinfully leading your family by demanding obedience to yourself? Or are you righteously leading your family before God by demonstrating obedience to Christ? And let me just say, whether you realize it or not, the implication of this is that before you can ever lead your wife, or your children, by demonstrating obedience to Christ to them, you have to be the kind of man who is already living in obedience to Christ now. You have to be the kind of man that does not live for yourself, but instead has put your flesh aside and is living for the Lord and for righteousness. Here's the question that Noah's example should bring to the forefront of all of our minds. If we are in Noah's shoes, if we were in Noah's shoes, if if we were to obey Yahweh and enter the ark, so to speak, would the way that we have led our wives and children thus far mean that they would more likely follow our example of obedience to God and enter the ark with us? Think on these things. Examine yourselves and make sure that the way that you are leading your household is the godly way and not the selfish way. With that weighty thought on our minds, let's turn our attention to the phrase, I have seen, in verse 1. The last part of verse 1 reads, For you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this generation. This is interesting when you consider all that Yahweh has seen thus far, particularly in Genesis chapter 6, and that every last drop of it was wickedness. We see this in Genesis six five, which reads, Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And we also see this in Genesis 6.12, which reads, And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. In Genesis chapter six, God saw the sin, the wickedness, the corruption and the evil in all flesh except one. In Noah, God saw righteousness. In Noah, Yahweh didn't see wickedness. He didn't see the evil and sin that he saw throughout the rest of his generation. But but Noah was a man, descended from Adam like the rest of us, and thus from Adam, Noah had inherited a, a sin nature. So so what's going on here? Remember that Noah, like Enoch, walked with God. And the implication is that God, in His sovereign grace, saved Noah. And thus, in stark contrast to the rest of mankind, to the rest of the wicked and vile generation that Noah lived in, Noah was now represented by the new Adam. He was represented by Jesus Christ and Christ's righteousness had been imputed to him. And here's the obvious question that we must all consider. Before Yahweh, before the one true and final judge of all things, how are you seen? It doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things how you are seen before anyone else. It doesn't matter in the end how you are seen before your parents or your friends your peers, your colleagues, your kids, your husband, your wife. What matters in a lasting, eternal sense is how you are seen before the one who determines your eternal destiny. For there is a day coming when you will stand before Yahweh and be judged for the deeds that you performed in this life. Then I saw a great white throne and Him. Who sits upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Then I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Let me give you a a bit of a heads up regarding this judgment that John writes about in Revelation 20. There is no deed, there is no work, no good thing that you can do which will be good enough for you to be seen before Yahweh as righteous. This is confirmed by Isaiah who tells us in Isaiah 64, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Every effort in and of ourselves, apart from Christ, everything that we have done that we think is good can only ever be considered as filthy garments. Friends, brothers and sisters, this is not good enough. Our our good deeds won't cut it. We need help. We need more Than help. We need the righteousness of another to be given to us. We we need to have the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ so that when we stand before God, He doesn't see our wickedness and sin like He saw in Genesis chapter 6, but instead He sees past our sin to the righteousness of Christ that has been given to us by grace alone, through faith alone. In Christ alone, he made him who knew no sin, and and this is speaking of Jesus Christ, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This, and this alone, is why Noah was seen before Yahweh as righteous. And ultimately, this is why Noah escaped the judgment. And unless you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, you will be seen before Yahweh not as righteous but as wicked. And you will not be spared from the judgment that is to come for your sin. But if you have faith in Christ, if you trust Him for your salvation, if you submit to Him as the Lord of your life, then like Noah, you will be seen before Yahweh as righteous. And like Noah, you will escape the coming judgment. How important it is then that that you repent of your sin and turn to Christ as your Lord and Savior. Your very life depends upon it. In verse 1, God commanded Noah to enter the ark. And now in verses 2 and 3, we read the following. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male male, and his female and of the animals that are not clean too a male and his female also of the birds of the sky by sevens male and female to keep their seed alive on the face of all the earth. And so here we see the specifics of God's instruction to Noah to enter the ark there were some things that Noah had to do. More specifically we see God's instructions regarding what Noah was to do with the animals. Now, in chapter 6, God has already told Noah that he is to bring animals onto the ark to keep them alive. And in those instructions, God made it clear he was to bring them onto the ark, male and female, just like he did again in our passage this morning. In Genesis 6, we also see that Yahweh told Noah that these animals were to be brought onto the ark, two of every kind, one male and one female. The unique part about verses 2 and 3 in our text this morning is that God classified these animals into two categories, clean and unclean. And it's important to note that this is the first mention in Genesis and and therefore the whole of the Bible of the categorization of animals of any kind, let alone that of clean and unclean. It is noteworthy that this distinction is is being made This distinction is being made here many years before Moses would further specify the details of what is meant by clean and unclean animals. Henry Morris, in his commentary, makes the following assumption about this. He says, It seems likely that the clean animals were those adjudged suitable for domestication and a form of fellowship with man, and thus also suitable for sacrificial offerings and atonement for man." Since no previous categorization of animals as clean or unclean as given in Genesis. It is perhaps most reasonable to believe that God allowed Noah to use his own judgment on this. Another commentator has another opinion. Noah may have known of the distinction between pure and impure through his walks with God. The fact of the matter is we're not given any more details about how Noah knew what constitutes a clean animal or an unclean animal. And in the end, it doesn't really matter how Noah went about making this distinction. The Scripture tells us that he did, and so it is reasonable to assume that God in some manner equipped Noah with the categories necessary to make this distinction, even though we, the reader, are not told in our text this morning exactly what that looked like. What is of greater importance is that God had a reason for making this distinction, and that becomes more apparent when we look ahead to the events that transpired after the floodwaters had receded. In Genesis eight twenty, we see the following. Then Noah built an altar to Yahweh and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. This is interesting when we remember that Yahweh commanded Noah to take the clean animals by sevens, which in the Hebrew is literally written seven, seven implying that Noah was to take seven pairs of these clean animals rather than the two animals reserved for the rest that did not fall into this category of clean. James Boyce makes the following observation regarding this. Two of every kind must be saved so that they can reproduce, and so the species will not be exterminated by the flood. Chapter 7 speaks of clean animals, that is, animals that were used for sacrifices and that followed, and that following the flood were also used for food. In this chapter, Jehovah is adding to the earlier instruction that which would be necessary for the survival of Noah's family and for the practice of religion. Obviously, if Noah had come out of the ark after the flood and had sacrificed a lamb as he undoubtedly did, Genesis says he sacrificed some of all the clean animals and clean birds, there would have been no more lambs or cows or doves or whatever. We also should mention that another purpose in God's instruction to Noah to take these animals, male and female, was to keep their seed alive on the face of all the earth. God's plan was to preserve these animals so that they could continue on after the flood. And this is in in anticipation of the future command that God will give to Noah to be fruitful and multiply in Genesis 8, verse 17, which reads, Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth, and that they may be fruitful and multiply on the earth. In these verses this morning, God is preparing Noah as a righteous man, to escape the coming judgment, much like God in his commands to us is preparing us to escape the coming judgment. The next verse in our passage this morning confirms this. God has just given Noah specific instructions regarding himself and the animals. And now in verse 4, God tells Noah why. God God lets Noah know the reason for his instructions. Verse 4 reads, For after seven more days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. The reason why God is commanding Noah to enter the ark and to bring these animals with him is because in seven days' time, Yahweh's judgment will come. In seven days' time, Yahweh will send rain on the earth that that will last for 40 days and 40 nights. And this rain, this, this judgment, will be so severe that all living things that Yahweh has made will be blotted out from the face of the earth. This is so practical. Think about how simple this is. God is saying that because this catastrophe is coming, get on the boat so you don't die. And bring the animals so they don't die and so that you have food to sustain you and clean animals to make burnt offerings after the fact. Now notice in verse 4, Yahweh takes personal responsibility for the coming judgment. He says, I will send rain on the earth. This rain and the coming flood is not some mere natural disaster that is nobody's fault, but Mother Nature, which, by the way, is a, a pagan concept in its own right. This is a purposeful and intentional sending of the terrifying wrath of a holy and righteous God in response to the wickedness of all that is living on the earth at Noah's time. It is a terrifying thing indeed to fall into the hands of the living God. And whether we like it or not, whether it feels nice, whether it resonates with us or not, an important part of the character of God is his wrath, his anger, his jealousy, his judgment, and his justice. In the modern church today, we hear a lot about the love of God, the grace and mercy and patience of God. We hear a lot about his long-suffering and his kindness, which are all a part of his glorious and righteous character. But there is an imbalance in our understanding of God if we only know him in those nice and comfortable terms and ignore or reject him regarding the other parts of his character that might not settle so well with us. How well something settles with us is a bad measure for what is true. And what is true is that God is all of these things. He is love, and he has a righteous anger, particularly towards sin and injustice. He is perfect in his mercy, and he will judge all sin completely. He is kind, and he is also jealous. He's all of these things and more. And at the bottom of all of this, it is important to remember that he is righteous which is another way of saying that everything that God does is the right thing. He is also holy, which is another way of saying that there is no other like him. He is unique and nothing can be compared to him. And finally, he is good. This means that we can know without any doubt that while this vast and total judgment against sin seems harsh, and it is harsh, that because of who God is, In all of his character, that it is good. Especially when measured not according to our understanding of what is good, but according to God himself who defines for us that which is right and that which is wrong. And one more thing we also must be careful in how we think about God, in how we evaluate God in his decisions, his actions. Even his character. We must be careful to not assume the position of judge before God. For he and he alone is judge of all things. And so God has been instructing Noah in all of these things for a very long time. And because Yahweh has chosen Noah from before the foundation of the world to be righteous, God sees him as righteous. And because Yahweh has chosen Noah from before the foundation of the world to be righteous, Noah obeys. Which leads us to the second point in our outline Noah obeys. Verse 5 reinforces the point that that Noah has been and continues to obey God in all that God requires of Noah. Verse 5 reads. And Noah did according to all that Yahweh had commanded him. Noah did according to all that Yahweh had commanded him. Noah did everything that God told him to. All of it. Not a single part was ignored. Not a single detail was left undone. And it was even completed within the time frame that God had given Noah. In verse verse 4, God told Noah that he had seven days to get all the animals and his family on the ark before judgment comes. And in the verses that follow, we will see that Noah accomplished everything God had instructed him to do within that time frame. And this tells us something of the nature of obedience. For from Noah's example, we learn two parts of what it means to obey. First, obedience consists of doing everything that you've been told. Not half, not a portion, not only a little bit, but all of it. Parents, I'm sure that this is something that resonates with you. Regarding your children, I know it does for me. When you ask your kids to do something, let's say clean their room, and they only clean part of it, but the rest has been completely neglected, well, that's not obedience. True, godly, biblical obedience is doing all that you've been told to do. In the case of cleaning the room, it means that that you clean it all, and you do so with the standard of excellence that would bring honor and glory to God. But this doesn't just apply to parenting. How often do we do all that God asks us to do? I'm speaking to myself here. Brothers and sisters, before the Lord, how well do we obey his commands for our lives? Are we doing all that he asks of us or only the bare minimum to achieve the appearance of obedience? Noah did all that God asked him to do and to the standard that God required. Further, obedience, that is true obedience, means that we do what God has commanded when God tells us to do it. It is not true, godly, biblical obedience if we do it in our own time, on our own schedule, when it's convenient for us. In our house, if we tell our kids to clean their room, and then I walk by the door to their room an hour later, And nothing's been cleaned, the excuse, well, I was going to do it in a few minutes, or I was waiting to do it after lunch, or I was just going to do it a little later, that doesn't fly. That is because when you ask your kids to clean their room, you expect them to go and do it then, and not when it's convenient for them and their busy schedule. In the case of our text this morning, the the following verses show us that Noah did indeed do all that God had commanded him. Verses 1 to 5 were God's instruction to Noah. And in verses 6 to 9, we see Noah obey those instructions. Verses 6 to 9 read as follows. Now Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood of clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground. By twos, they came to Noah into the ark, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And by the way, in verse 10, which we'll look at more next week, we see that he did it within the seven days that God gave him for the task. Verse 10 reads, Now it happened after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. Noah obeyed. He did everything exactly as God asked him to, and he did it in the time frame that God established for him to do it. Noah is an example to us of what, of what it looks like to live in true obedience to the Lord. Now, verses 6 and 7, which we just read, as well as verse 17, which we'll look at next week, these verses mark one of the most significant events in the history of the world. For they mark the end of what is called the antediluvian age and the start of the post-diluvian age, which are really fancy words for the pre-flood and post-flood ages. Further, the very specific dating given in these verses For when this took place also affirms that the flood is not a myth. Rather, it is a real historical event that took place on a specific day in history and is not some story of mere legend made up to explain some fanciful notion of our origins and the calamity faced by early man. On the contrary, the global flood really happened as an actual event of history. Verse 6 tells us that Noah was 600 years old when the flood came, which means that the flood came 100 years after Noah became father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We, we know this when we look back at Genesis 5.32, where we learned that Noah was 500 years old when they were born. And in verses 7 to 9, we see this general statement summarizing the fact that Noah, his wife, his sons, and his sons' wives all entered the ark with him. God commanded them to to enter the ark in verse 1. They actually obeyed God's command and entered here in verse 7. And in verse 13, again we'll look at that more next week, we are given a little more detail. Specifically, we are told that this day upon which they entered the ark was the last of the seven days. And we are told that this day was the day that the rain actually started to fall. Now, looking at verses 8 and 9, we read the following. Of clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground, by twos they came to Noah into the ark, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. Notice that, as Matt mentioned last Sunday, we see here again that Noah didn't go out on an expedition to seek out these animals. On the contrary, by twos they came to Noah into the ark. And again, we see here a summary of Noah's obedience with regard to the command that God gave him in the first half of our passage this morning. Noah did all that God had commanded him. And so the thought, the the question that I think we should think about as we conclude this morning is, how did Noah prepare for judgment? And the answer is simple. Noah prepared for judgment by obeying God. Noah was prepared for judgment by God's choosing of Noah from for the foundation of the world. And because, God's, because of God's sovereign election of Noah unto salvation, Noah then prepared for judgment by obeying him. God sovereignly called Noah to be one of his own. God sovereignly imputed the righteousness of Christ to Noah, and Noah did what anyone who has had this done to them would do. He lived in light of this righteousness, and he obeyed God, doing all that God had sovereignly ordained for him to do. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Noah was doing what any regenerate person does. He was walking in the good works that God had prepared beforehand for him to do. And for those of you who are with us this morning that do not believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, I encourage you to look at Noah as the example of the way that you also can prepare for the coming judgment. In John 2:32, we see that God does indeed command us <clears throat> not only to love, but to believe in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a command. John one three, First John three twenty three says, "And this is His command. This is His command that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He gave a commandment to us." John 3.18 confirms that the way for the unbeliever to prepare for and thus avoid the judgment of God is to believe in Christ. John 3.18 says, He who believes in Him is not judged. What happens if you don't believe Him? Well, he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And so again, I encourage you to repent of your sins. Believe in Jesus Christ, as the, in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as Lord and Savior of your life. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And you will be saved from the judgment that is to come, as Noah was saved from the imminent flood that God was about to pour out onto the whole earth. I leave you with this sobering passage from 2 Peter which tells us that we can be assured of two things. First, that God will will not spare the unrighteous from judgment. But thankfully, it also tells us that God does preserve the righteous. And the question that needs to be answered this morning is, are you among the righteous? 2 Peter 2, verses 4 through 9. For if God did not spare angels who sinned, but cast them into the pit and delivered them to chains of darkness being kept for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter... And if he rescued Lot, if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, here's the key, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And it is my prayer this morning that you are among the godly, that like Noah, you are preserved from the coming judgment. Amen? Amen. Now I invite Noel and the music team back up to lead us in musical worship as I close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this time, Lord, for your word. We thank you for Noah and his example, Lord of obedience. And so, Father, I pray that uh, we would see that, Lord, and that you would work in our lives accordingly to live our lives for you. Lord, that we would submit ourselves to Christ. Lord, for in him is the only way to escape judgment. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.